Um, you know, the, the scriptures say honour, where honour is due. I don't know where the musicians are. They probably took off, which is fine. Um, but I was a musician in time past. There's an awful amount of work that goes into preparing and you get to do two songs and then you're gone. Now that's, um, we should applaud them and say thank you. Is that all right? Great, well, uh, thank you for coming back and we're now having our second day on the Trinity. If uh, you were with us yesterday, someone down the front here suggested that we all stand for the scripture reading. So I'd like to do that. Uh, we won't all read it together. I've tried that on a couple of occasions and Brown's cows end up being better organised. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll read the text for you. We'll do that and then we have to do a little bit, bit of catch up from yesterday and then we'll launch into this text. Is that okay? So um, shall we stand together just in the presence of God and his word? This will be the text that we'll be concluding with uh, in this morning session. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked for you have found favour in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. Uh, let me just note, by the way, that if Jesus is the Lord, not only have we seen the face of God in him, but now we have life. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain and do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He said, if now I have found favour in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. And here's my translational change. Because this is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. We all say, Amen. Thank you. So we're at the section today, we're going to talk about the God of Israel. If we're talking about the Trinity, we need to know uh, who the Father is of whom we speak. Right? But what we need to do before we go there is finish off with a couple of things that we didn't quite get through yesterday, if that's okay. And I realise a bit of a grinding of gears at this point. We've had a wonderful text read. Now we have to jump back to something else. But uh, we were talking about ways of understanding the Trinity and some of the problems that we can have. So just to remind you... Um, Part of the debate about the Trinity is the meaning of the Greek words that people use. They have different senses. Even the word father can have different meanings to different people. We talked about that. So we have to be careful about the language we use. I also suggested to you that we want to be careful about rationality. 
And I suggested yesterday that the Greeks' amazing imaginative leap was that the world was rational, it just happens to be wrong. The world is not rational, it is not what we expect it to be according to our logic. That's why the Greeks never developed science. Really good at geometry, but geometry are not aircraft. It's not modern medicine, or is not aircraft, not modern medicine, right? Now, I can't go too much into that except to say, if logic did not help us understand the way the world actually is, who makes us think it's gonna help us understand the Trinity, that is, the God who made that world? So I'm very wary of starting with human reason and logic. It doesn't work with the created world, and I don't think it's going to work with the God who made that world. We talked about the Greeks' love of speculation, and human beings love that. Then we talked about Methuselah, three or four references, and yet we produce books of 200 pages. Humans love to speculate. But whenever the Greeks did that, they were almost entirely invariably wrong. Speculation is not a good thing to do. Warn you against that. And even their analogies, we pointed out the fact that the huge problem with all of those analogies is they're based on the created material world and God is neither created nor is he material. So you really have to watch those. Every time we use an analogy, it's coming from something that is not God and actually not like him. And you have to be able to test those analogies against the reality of who the spirit is, but that's actually a lot harder to do than you'd imagine. So I'm wary of analogies. All right, so we've just quickly gone over some of the problems that emerged amongst Hellenistic Christians when they're trying to work out what the Trinity is like. Now, over against that is Israel. And Israel is fundamentally different in this regard. And uh, this is why, can I suggest to you, that Israel's view basically conquered the Greek view of the world and gave us modernity. I've said this a few times, I'll keep saying it. The modern world is not the product of Greek rationality. It's the product of the gospel. You won't learn that people have equal value by just being rational about it. If you're rational, we don't. We believe all people have value, not because of reason, but because of what God told us. We believe that change is good, not because that's what reason tells us. The Greeks understood that. The problem with change is, if it changes, it can't be true. Two plus two must always equal four. If that changes, it's not true, and they believed if it wasn't true, it wasn't real. That's where reason takes you. Now, it's actually what the Bible has to tell us about what the world is, who we are, and how we understand it that gave rise to modernity. Now, again, I'll talk about this in the seminar, I think on Thursday or Friday, something like that. We won't do it here. But I just want you to realize that Israel's way of approaching the world is profoundly generative. Every modern country in the world is basically Christian in its outlook. Every modern country, even if they don't realize it. So it's amazing to say to people, actually, even though our culture thinks it's post-Christian, it doesn't realize the gospel has won. Even your most radical atheist is profoundly Christian in the way they understand the world. So one of the key things for Israel, as you can see from the overhead here, is it doesn't trust reason. It doesn't start with what seems rational to them. We're going to see that in this next session when we talk about how they get to know Yahweh. Israel begins with what they actually experienced, what their senses observed. You'll see this in the Exodus. You go read it through and see how often the verbs seeing and hearing are there. Tremendous emphasis on the senses. Now you'll hear some people tell you, don't let your experience determine your theology. I don't think those people have read their Bibles. Go back and read the Exodus and see how often there's an appeal to the senses. Look at the Gospels. What are the Gospels? Their biographies about what? About what, what people saw and heard and touched. First John, what's he reporting to you? What we have seen, what we have touched, what we've heard and what we've handled. That's all your senses. The reason we're Christians is because we didn't trust our theology. We actually trusted our senses. It's what we saw Jesus do. We'll come to that again in just a couple of days. It's profound. And that's why I think when God says, I am who I am, he means don't guess. We'll come back to this in just a moment. You've never met a God like me. I do not conform 
to your rational ideas or your imagination of what a God should be like. We've seen the results of that. The Egyptian gods, the Greco-Roman gods, Platonic Aristotelian philosophy, God is none of those things. And so he says to Moses, I am who I am, don't guess. You look, you watch, you learn, you listen because I am a God unlike any other. Do not speculate. It's one of the reasons I'm really hesitant when people start speculating about the life of the Trinity. Don't go there. I think when Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, don't go beyond what's written, he means exactly what he says. If God hasn't spoken, zip the lip, as we said yesterday. This doesn't mean that they don't think. Paul's a remarkable thinker. They're just doing it in a very different way. They start with what they've experienced and then they think their way through that. Nowhere will you see Moses or the elders having a symposium at the foot of Mount Sinai, studying with first principles, thinking their way up to Yahweh. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. We are not the measure of all things. The only one who's the measure of all things is the I am, and I'm who I am, not what you imagine me to be. And you'll notice this in Scripture, by the way, there are no analogies. No attempt in the New Testament to come up with an analogy for the Trinity, given all that they know. And why don't, why don't they do that? They don't really tell us, but I would want to argue it's because they reject that way of knowing. It presumes too much. They're not prepared to go that far. Well, I want to suggest to you then, in concluding this little section here, that what really creates a lot of the trouble around Trinitarian discussion is the clash of these two ways of understanding the world. Israel's primary way of knowing God is through history and experience. Go back and read the scriptures. That's how they encounter him. For the Hellenists, the way you know the world is through your reason and your rationality. And actually, they don't work together. They're implicitly opposed to one another. I would argue that's one of the reasons why in the book of Acts, wherever the Christians go, they create trouble. They're not just taking down the label Yahweh, oh, sorry, Zeus from a temple and putting up Yahweh. They're actually undermining the entire fabric of the ancient world. And it's because they succeeded that we now have modernity. So we have this ongoing tension, some of us. How do we use our minds in all of this? And I should just say, by the way, I don't think we covered it in the last lecture, but there are a couple of Israeli scholars, if I can remember their names now, Aaron Hahnemann and I think Amos Tversky, uh, they were employed by the Israeli army to try and work out in advance who would make good leaders under combat conditions. Very difficult thing right, to determine. And what these two scholars began to do was think about how human beings make decisions when they don't have enough data. One of the things they noted was that human beings have a belief in small numbers. They called it the law of small numbers. Now, one of them is a statistician. And he says, yep, if you throw a dice 10,000 times, it's going to be 50-50 but not for 20. And the problem is with us as humans, we continue to build our expectations on two small data sets. Very limited experience and we generalise. They say that's the law of small numbers and it leads us astray every time. They did some tests so they get people to spin a wheel with a large range of numbers on it and then they'd ask them how many countries in Africa. And they did this for about 4,000 people and guess what they found? The higher the number you span, the higher the number you think there were countries in Africa. Our mind plays tricks on us. That's what they discovered. You know, our rationality tricks us. Just like there are tricks of the eyes, there are tricks of the mind. And probably the most profound one that we fall for all the time is if something sounds reasonable, we believe it's true. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's only true if you've got the evidence. Now, if you don't believe me, just try it sitting around lunch today. I kind of extract yourself and just listen to the discussions and how much of those discussions are based on, oh, this sounds reasonable to me. And frankly, who cares? <laughs> Where's your evidence? Right? And that's, can you see that now? Because that's the stunning thing about the scriptures. Can you see that? We did not invent this God. It's born of our experience. That's why he's a God unlike any other. We did not invent the Trinity. It just landed in our laps. And we talked about that yesterday. Right. 
Jesus does God's stuff as a human being and then he starts talking to God as father and God speaks back to him as son. That's where it comes from. Nobody invented this. I was having a chat with someone down the front about how do you actually communicate this idea to people in the Islamic world? And you know what makes it particularly hard? The reason it's so hard is they're still, I'm not trying to be offensive about this, they're still mired in antiquity. They still think that being rational is the secret and they'll never become modern as long as they think that. You have to get beyond that and let the world tell you what it is without imposing upon it what we think it should be. And good brothers and sisters, please hear me. Nowhere is that more true than of Yahweh. He is not made in our image. He is who he is and thank God for that. How would you like the good news of God actually being like me, Rick, an Australian, for crying out loud? I don't think that would be classified as gospel. Right? So, this ongoing tension that we face, these two different ways of thinking, and you know, just in terms of the Trinity, just trying to keep that balance is really, really tricky because the more we talk of three, we can lose the unity. And the more we talk of the unity we can lose the fact that there are three persons. And even the language person, the word person in the modern world means something very, very different from what it meant back in the first, second, fourth century. We've had the enlightenment where person means the autonomous free self. You think that's Yahweh? Autonomous? Doing his own thing? Not in that sense. We're talking about a God who's love. Where does love fit into the Enlightenment's vision of being a human being, of a person. Then, of course, post-modernity, which is where most of we are, most of us are, beg your pardon. And what are we dealing with? Well, being a person is this fragmented, fragile self defined primarily on Facebook, if you're ancient like me, or Twitter, if you're younger. That's what it means to be a person in our world. Well, that's not what we mean when we say God is a person. We're going to have to learn what that means by going back to the Scriptures. All right, so thank you very much for hanging in me with that one. We've talked about, uh, just bring this to conclusion. So what is the Trinity? One God and three persons. Why would one believe this? Well, we believe it because it comes from Jesus ultimately, and we alluded to that. Then we talked about some of the issues to do with understanding. So now I want to talk about the God of Israel, finally. Right? The God that Jesus is and what this God looks like. A number of weeks ago, I was invited to give a lecture at Regent College, and uh, as I was thinking about that, I was struck by something I'd never really noticed before. And that was in my seminary training, when I took a class in theology, the first place we started was with the doctrine of God. Anyone else done something like that? Yep, that's where you started. Interesting, isn't it? Because um, what struck me is that's not where the Bible begins. I mean, what do you do with that? Bible-believing Christians who think they know better than the Bible where to start when you want to talk about who God is. <laughs> Come on, you've got to laugh at ourselves sometimes, right? It's just <laughs> the best thing we can do. It's just astonishing. Okay? Genesis begins not with the doctrine of God, but it begins with what he makes. Now, this is why Apple is such a successful company. They don't begin with the doctrine of Johnny Ive. They begin with your experience of an iPhone or an Apple store because they understand how this works. The focus, having seen God as maker, have you ever noticed where it goes after that? We all talk about the fall, but we forget that mostly it's about human beings as makers. If you watch those chapters, three through six, the primary focus is on the fact that even though human beings are out of relationship with God, we still create, we still innovate, we still build. And I'm thinking, why couldn't I see this? It's been in the text, no one's changed. It's been there for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, and never seen it. And I think the reason is this. I'm far more Hellenistic than I realize. Because I think knowing God is about description, but what if it's not about description? What if it's about making? 
And can I suggest, I wonder if that's one of the major problems with most theological colleges, why we send people off and they come back next to useless. I'm sorry, but I'm part of that system. Right? And the reason is because we teach them that knowing God is about description and it's not about description, not according to the Bible. It's about making. It's about creativity. It's about innovation. That's what we're made to do. What if that's part of the key to understanding the Trinity? What if the Trinity is not really about description? What if it's really about the stuff that undergirds making and creativity? So that's where I'm going to start. I'm actually going to go with the scripture because I'm with a bunch of people who care about the Bible, so I feel on at least semi-safe ground. Is that a fire I can smell? Being <laughs> All right, so a couple of things to notice here just quickly as we go through this creation narrative. When you become a Christian, there are all kinds of starting points. And if you became a Christian through an altar call, your basic starting point is sin, right? And then becoming good. You kind of start with the framework evil and good, but that's not where Genesis starts. That doesn't come until further down the track. For some of us, if you're Pentecostal, it's spiritual versus fleshly, which probably owes a bit more to Hellenism than we realize. For others, it's heavenly versus earthly, and I grew up with a real rapture-oriented community, always waiting to do that, and um, wonderful, I suppose. Uh, or eternal versus temporal, all of those things. But notice that's not where the Bible begins. And can I suggest kindly that if we start in any of those other places, we'll soon end up getting into trouble. And I think for most of us as evangelicals, the problem is we start with good and evil, and that's not where the Bible starts. Start with good and evil, and you're in serious trouble. Because what do you do in the real world where some people only have two choices, bad and worse? And there are a lot of people who are in that situation. If my world is just good and evil, I can't speak to that without sounding incredibly inhumane. And don't we sometimes have that reputation? Where does the Bible start? It starts with life. It starts with the Creator. It starts with the one who brings form and fullness to that which was empty and formless. So can I suggest to you that the grammar of the Christian life is really about life as opposed to death. That's where we live. And I think John's gospel gets this. Over and over and over again in John's gospel, I've come to give you eternal life. We're not called to be the moral police of the universe. Doesn't mean we can't speak to those things, but our motivation has always got to be to bring life because that's what God does. So their fundamental distinction is between the creator and the creation. Now, of course, the creator we'll see is Elohim, but that's the fundamental distinction, creator and creation. Coming out of that, creation is not divine. The ancient world believed it was. They believed that the storms are actually God's. And I think you've heard Ian Proven talk about this. So when it tells you, you will not fear the sun by day or the moon by night, it's not talking about God providing a new form of super sunscreen lotion. What it's telling you is you don't need to fear those things. That sun and that moon, they're just stuff. And furthermore, they're there to be lights to serve you. You don't need to fear the powers of this created world because they're actually not powers at all. They're just stuff. Now, if I had more time, I could talk about how radical this is. We're so Christian, we don't realize that the modern world is so Christian, we don't understand how radical that statement is. But if you're afraid of something or you're worshiping it, you never really get to learn what makes it tick. And it's only when the world is disenchanted that you can actually begin to be set free from it and begin to see how it can flourish and bring life to people. Astonishing how that begins. Now, when I say it's just stuff, it happens to be God's temple, which makes it pretty special stuff. So you don't treat it with contempt. Got to look after it. Third point to note here, and this is, again, absolutely stunning. Genesis does not say creation is perfect. You've got to hear that. You don't want a perfect world. Why not? Because if it's perfect, it can't change. The moment it changes, it's no longer perfect. Do you want to live in a world like that? 
to call the world good is an incredible gift to us because it opens a space where human beings made in God's image can look like him by making and creating. Wouldn't it be astonishing if the Christians are known for being the most innovative, creative and life-bringing tribe on the planet? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Maybe looking like the God in his image we're made, I think. Absolutely stunning, seems to me. There are no other gods. They simply don't exist. Now, just to make a point here, Israel has no concept of divine. I'm trying to eradicate that word from my vocabulary. So I hear people say Jesus is divine. Nah, it's not really a Jewish idea. Pagans can talk about divine because they have a whole bunch of things that fit that category. But not in Israel. There's no divine, there's just Yahweh. So the question is not whether Jesus is divine. The question is, is he Yahweh? We don't do divinity. That's not part of our grammar, not part of our landscape. Jesus is either God or he's a creature. It also rules out, I think, another common mistake. Satan or the devil is not kind of an equal dark side, a kind of anti-God. No, he's a creature too. He cannot read your mind. He can't control nature. That's God's thing. God is not human. Most of the ancient world, the gods look like humans or like animals, and Genesis says, no, he's not. He doesn't look like you. He doesn't look like the creation. It's really good news. That's where the I am, who I am is going to come in. Absolutely critical. But we do know he's a person. He speaks, he acts, he sees. So even though we don't actually have a doctrine of Elohim per se, we can certainly learn some things about him. Our first encounter is to see him in an act of making, and he makes this astonishing world. Who hasn't looked at a sunset and wanted to give thanks? Or some of you reminded me uh, just yesterday, who hasn't had a nice cup of coffee and wanted to give thanks? Well, where do you get that from? That's the nature of our God. That's what he does. He's the creator. We know he's also deeply concerned with human beings. How we treat his creation. How we treat other people. We'll talk about this a bit later when we get to the spirit. But you understand that human beings, as we said last time, made in God's image, you and I were designed to be the presence of God upon the earth. Now, we're images. We're not God. I want to keep that distinction clear. But images are meant to be the physical expression of God's presence. Now, coming out of that, I think there's an important observation as touching the Trinity. And that is, what do you do with Jesus in the incarnation? I remember when I was a young lad, someone trying to explain this to me. And they said, well, it's a little bit like, you know, you're an ant and God looks down and wants to become an ant. And what a wonderful, incredible act of self-limitation that is. You probably heard that. Um, But you know what? Actually, ants are not made in God's image. Interesting analogy, just hopelessly wrong. And becoming a grasshopper doesn't make it any better. You see what happens? This is the danger of believing something because it sounds reasonable. And that's not what we do. We did not invent this stuff. So we're going to go to the one who did and learn from him. That's why we care about scripture. Why we care about reading it well. If human beings were actually designed to be indwelt by God's presence, how can becoming Jesus coming in human form, how can that be an act of humiliation? Psalm 8 actually says that humans are a little lower than God. How can that be an act of great humiliation? And in fact, if you go back and read Philippians 2, which we will later on, and read it carefully, it's not becoming incarnate that's the great act of humiliation. It's taking on the form of a servant, of a slave, even unto death. Now that's something about self-humbling, but not becoming incarnate, I would argue. Second thing, just to allude to this we'll uh, get into it I think tomorrow that image language prepares us to talk about the spirit we haven't really done it here but the spirit appears at the beginning of Genesis 1 and at the end hovering over the waters and then it's going to be connected with image language not explicitly mentioned but it's there we'll come back to that fourth point here I've already mentioned this a few times because I wanted to stick IBM used to talk about the seven times principle 
you have to tell people things seven times before it sticks. So you've done three of them, four more to come. Okay? And that's a good number, seven, right, don't you think? Double the Trinity plus one. Sounds reasonable? Mm. <laughs> so we're not surprised that after this incredible story of God making, that's what you see human beings doing, how they make. Right? And that's partly what I think the story of the tree has to do with what's going to inform our design choices. Designers will tell us behind every design choice is your character. Scary thought. People can walk into your home and read your character off the surface of your living room. Right? Even scarier, they can walk into your church and read the character of the board of elders and the pastor off the way that church operates. Right? Every design choice reflects your character. That's why character is so critical. That's why it's really important to know who Yahweh is. Well, Elohim, is it the Trinity? Some of you are probably waiting for this one. Is it a subtle illusion? Well, to cut to the chase, I don't think so. Uh, first thing to notice is only Christians would ask that question. No Jewish, Jewish person would ever think that having a plural to Elohim meant the Trinity. Okay? Just not the way they think about this. In my experience of reading scripture, God doesn't play these kinds of hermeneutical tricks. That's what the Delphic Oracle did in Greece. It would give you these kind of enigmatic kind of riddles that you had to work out what the meaning was. One of the classic cases is King Croesus. Right? Persians amassing on the eastern border. Should have gone to war with the Persians. And he gets this wonderful statement from the Oracle. If you cross the Halus River, he would destroy a great empire. He thinks, great, I'll attack the Persians. But the Oracle didn't say which empire. It turned out to be his. No, I think if the point of this was to indicate some notion of being more than one person in God, Moses or the prophets or someone would have picked that up. And the fact that it's not there suggests to me that it's probably inappropriate for us to read the Trinity into the plural Elohim. I'd say the same thing about the visitation of the three guests in Genesis 18 to Abraham. Uh, it's just not clear. And if there's one thing about God that he prides himself on, in Deuteronomy he says this, the word that I've given you is not too hard for you. It's not a trick. It's not a riddle. It's right there in front of you. And these are uneducated, ordinary people. So my advice to you would be, unless it's clear in Scripture, don't go speculating. Just, if it's not clear, just let it be. Okay? You could write a song about that if you wanted to. Now, that brings us to the Exodus. And say a couple of things about this that I think are helpful. This is where you really start to see the language of the Trinity begin to emerge. Lord, Father, Son. It's really all around the Exodus event. And what's critical, I think, is to realize that the Exodus is absolutely central to the five books of the Torah. Even Genesis is seen as preparing just for the Exodus. It takes up four books. It's pervasive, this moment of the Exodus throughout the rest of Scripture. Right? Particularly the prophet Isaiah, who happens to be the most commonly quoted prophet in Jewish synagogue readings in the first century, in Qumran and in the New Testament. Why is it so important? Because this is where you learn about Yahweh. That's why it's so profound. And we'll see this. When Moses encounters God at the burning bush, what does he hear? Abraham did not know me as Yahweh, but I am now about to reveal myself in these terms. Now, forgive this analogy, <laughs> but it gives you some idea of what this human engagement might be about. Many years ago, I was studying in England at a small parochial school called Cambridge. And, uh, you know, everyone there is professor. So Professor Mona Hawker, she was supervising me for a while and uh, she survived it, which is great. I'm sure she's delighted. But, uh, you know, I would meet with her and was always Professor Hooker, Professor Hooker, Professor Hooker. And then about a month before uh, my viva, when my thesis was going to be examined, we went out for coffee and I sat down with her and I said, Professor Hooker, and she stopped me and she said, Rick, it's Mona. Now that might not mean much to you, but the earth moved under my feet. <laughs> 
that totally changed our relationship. This is now a much more personal friendship dynamic. I knew now that I could talk to her about all kinds of issues, call her up out of the blue, send her an email. Whenever I'm in Cambridge, I go visit her. Uh, something radically shifted. And I think that's what's going on with the personal name of Yahweh. There's a radical shift in Israel's relationship to Elohim. In fact, the word Yahweh gets mentioned over 6,000 times in Israel's scriptures and father, maybe 20. God is father, maybe 20. God is Yahweh, 6,000. Why is that important? Well, we talked about this. What's your vision of fatherhood? And if statistics are anything to go by, there's a number of women here who have a terrifying understanding of what father means because of what they've gone through. Sons too. See, there's two dangers here. We've already talked about one, where we conform God to our rationality. The other one is we, we conform God to our experience. And then some of us, we have these wonderfully romanticized, even sentimental visions of what a father should be like, but they're not real. I think the critical thing going on here is we need to know who Yahweh is first. And then we can understand what true fatherhood looks like. Can I suggest to you, that's why the Bible is so, so strong in talking about who Yahweh is. In fact, more than twice as common than Elohim. That's how important Yahweh is. We'll need to talk about then the significance of that word. And why is this really helpful for us? Because that's how Jesus is described. When Paul says there is one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying is there is one Elohim and Father and one Yahweh, Jesus Christ. He's identifying Jesus with Yahweh. So we're going to see who this Yahweh is in these amazing texts. So first encounter at the burning bush. Who is this Yahweh? He's the God of the fathers. He's the one who's been faithfully leading the ancestors. What else do we know about him? Look at how this begins. I am Yahweh, and what does that mean? I'm all-powerful, I'm this, I'm that. No, 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 no. It's stunning. What do you get? What you hear is this incredible language. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Whatever else comes to mind when you hear the word Yahweh should be compassion. Compassion. Now, is that what we're known for as people of the Lord? Because that's how the revelation of Yahweh begins. And you know, not to be unkind, but can I hazard a guess? That's probably not very high on the list of attributes that most people ascribe to Christians. Is this what it means to take my name in vain? To say I'm a follower of Yahweh and I don't actually look like him? Might that, that be what it is? Not about expletives at all or maybe even more shockingly to say I'm a Christian and not look like Yahweh. That is the F-bomb in God's eyes. Ooh. And then he's come down to deliver. That's what he's known for. He's going to take them to a new creational land. And then you'll notice in verse 12, there's this emphasis. I will be with you. This will be the sign you'll worship me on the mountain. Incredible emphasis on God's presence. We're going to see that a bit later on. The golden calf incident. God finally says, I can't go with you because I'll break out against you and destroy you because of your wickedness. Right? And Moses says, but think about your reputation. And furthermore, we don't want the land if your presence is not there. We don't want the Torah if you're not present. And that might explain, folks, why some of our churches are just dry and dusty and dead. We love the Torah, but there's no presence. No wonder it doesn't attract people. What's needed is God's presence, not just talk about him, but his presence. His real, compassionate, merciful presence. Oh, and that worship means we don't get to be autonomous. We don't get to do our own thing. He stands at the center of all we do. Philip Yancey talked about that. He talked about his brother on the first night, I think. 
who'd pursued this autonomous life of freedom totally destroyed him. The journey of self-discovery will just lead you into a vacuum. There's nothing there. Yahweh is the one who we need to know. And then I am who I am. We've talked a bit about this. I've already suggested to you, don't guess. You're going to learn who I am. And what have we learned already? That he sees, he hears, cries, he acts. But I also think particularly, uh, I'm not the product of Israel's imagining or speculation. I am who I am. They're going to see what that's like. They're going to experience that. And then when they ask, well, Moses, if they ask me who sent me, well, just tell them, I am sent you. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. I don't mean to be irreverent, but, you know, we just need to kind of, it's been pretty intense, so dial it down a bit here. But, you know, you're in the supermarket, shake somebody's hand. Hi, who are you? Oh, I'm Sue. And you? Oh, I'm I am. We're going to see where that gets picked up, though, in just a moment. There's some wonderful things that come out of this. Final point is the emphasis on Yahweh as the one who does this, particularly in Exodus 6 after Moses tries this out, doesn't quite work, comes back and complains. Right? Pharaoh rejects this command to let Israel, let Israel go. And so what's going to happen is Israel will now see God as Yahweh in ways that neither Abraham nor Isaac nor Jacob had ever witnessed. Again, that's why the book of Exodus is so critical for Israel. I am the Lord. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you. I am Yahweh. You know what that means? It's not about you. It's not about me. That's, you can take incredible comfort in this. Yes, there are things that Christians should do. We should evangelize. We should be we're doing all that kind of stuff. But in the end, I am is the one who does it. And Luke gets this in the book of Acts. You see these Christians muddling about, having bun fights over this and all that kind of stuff. They get thrown into prison, all kinds of things. Ananias and Sapphira, right? Meant to be involved in mission and they're sitting in Jerusalem, you know, enjoying one another's company and all this stuff's going on. But Luke tells you that the Holy Spirit just keeps driving this forward. Now you can take incredible encouragement in this. It is not about us ultimately. So when you sing those songs about the Lord, it's okay to stand on your seat and let it rip. If you can do that, or maybe raise a finger just at the beginning. You know, well, oh my goodness. <laughs> but can I say something here, if you don't mind me, just pastorally? If you're worried about what people think of you loving the Lord when you're among Christians, you're going to have a terrible time talking about him to non Christians. Because your primary grammar is going to be what people think about me. You know what? And actually, <laughs> that's not freeing for them or for you. But to be beyond that, to be beyond that, where you just, it's not an agenda where that's even in the equation. You have no idea how attractive and liberating that is to people. Now, in terms of Trinitarian thinking, remember Paul and Jesus? That's who you're meeting in Jesus. You're actually not meeting God. You're meeting Yahweh. That makes a huge amount of difference. Can you see that? Now, we'll unpack that when we get to the Jesus section in a couple of sessions. But it's really important to get this, right? At the Exodus, Israel met Yahweh, kind of the personal, powerful encounter, unlike anything Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob had seen. And that's the word that Paul uses of Jesus. Now, father-son language, that also comes up here, right? Talk about what that means. Couple of things to keep in mind, it seems to me. Uh, first person called Son of God in the Bible is Israel. Exodus 4:22. Israel is my firstborn son. And again, it's motivated by compassion. Right? And it's about God who's not only able but will respond. And it's all about taking them to a place where they can worship and then live in his presence. Okay. So lots of language here about sonship. Begetting, you know the only begotten son language? Begetting also occurs. Deuteronomy 32, 
verses 6 and 18. That's used of Israel. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the language of Messiah and son of God there. And then Psalm 89, the Davidic king will call God my father, and actually God calls him firstborn. Now what do we do with all of that? Well, don't forget the first text we read in that first session from John. John has written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what is this telling us? Okay, uh, are you ready for this? Nowhere in Israel's scriptures does being God's Son make you God. Israel's not God. David's not God. That's not how that language works. If you want to talk the God grammar, remember there are two kinds of things in Israel's story. There's the creator and the creation. So if you want to talk in the creator grammar up here, that's Elohim and Yahweh. That's the God side of stuff. So Abraham knew me as Elohim Almighty, but not as Yahweh. But when God is talking to his creation, that's when the father-son language comes in. So I've run this past a few of my friends who are theologians. This is kind of the radical idea. What if father-son language does not actually belong in the God category? Because it doesn't actually do that in Israel's story. Father-son language is always the language between God and his creation, whether Israel, David, Right? But if you want to talk about Jesus being God, don't go the sun route, because it never meant that. Listen to Paul. There is one God and Father and one Lord, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say one son. He says one Yahweh, one Lord. Right? Absolutely critical, it seems to me. Well, in the remaining few minutes, um, I want to just say something about one of these moments that has to do with uh, Yahweh functioning as Israel's father, a father in the ancient world. Obviously, that language is important, but it's to do with instruction, preservation, keeping. Right? And so I would argue that when you see Jesus and the father operating as father, son, what's really going on is Jesus is modeling what it means for us to be God's children. He's being the Israel that Israel never was. And we'll come back to that in a couple of days when we actually look at the Jesus thing. But I want to finish with this story if I can because I think it reveals something pretty powerful about the character of this Yahweh to whom we've come. You know the story, God's demonstrated his amazing power. He's defeated the gods of Egypt who turned out to be nothings. All the stuff the Egyptians thought those gods did, Yahweh does. He separates the night from the darkness. He creates the world and gives it its order. And then when they come to the crossing of the Red Sea, they see it all there, right? It's dark and light appears in the darkness. Then there's wind blowing across the water and they go across on dry ground. That's a creation narrative. So they learn that Yahweh's the creator. They've seen all these amazing things. Then Miriam leads them this kind of, you know, boogie dance or whatever it is that they do and it's all great and wonderful. And then something goes wrong and what immediately happens? Immediately they start to question, is God among us or not? Notice that, the presence language. Now this is quite stunning. They bring an accusation to Moses and say, you know, you and your God is no different from Pharaoh and his gods, or are no different from Pharaoh and his gods. And so you want to kill us, we'll kill you. They pick up stones to stone him. What does Moses do? He runs off to the tent of meeting and says, Yahweh, help. Probably a good thing to do. And what's God's response? He says, Moses, you take that staff with which you struck the Nile. Isn't that interesting? And then go out before the elders of Israel. You see what's going on there? That staff is a sign of judicial authority. When Moses struck the Nile, he was acting as God's judicial representative, judging Egypt. Because even in Egypt's own grammar, the Nile was a source of life. And to drown people in it like that was a fundamental contradiction in terms, even in his own culture. And so what happens is that that staff turns that water into the blood that represents death. That's what you've done with it, Pharaoh. That's what it's going to become. Now, Moses, you bring that stuff. And then we're going to come out in front of the elders of Israel. You know what that is? That's a trial scene. Exodus 17, God is on trial. He's been accused of faithlessness and attempted genocide. 
And so he says to Moses, you come with me, bring that staff in front of all the elders of Israel. And now here's the bit that just throws everybody. No one knows what to do with this. Not the rabbis, not most commentators. But what God says to Moses is, I'm going to stand on the rock at Horeb. Remember Horeb? That's where the burning bush was. That's where you got the I am who I am. That same location. I'm going to stand on the rock at Horeb facing you. And then what is Moses meant to do? He's meant to take that staff that represents judicial action and what is he supposed to do? He's meant to smite the rock. Do you see what's going on? For God to stand on the rock is to identify with it. What's actually happening is God is saying to Moses, you think I'm like the gods of Egypt? You think I'm like them? Carry out the death sentence on me and see what happens. You see what happens? He bleeds living water for his people. I am not those gods. You have never met a God like me. And John's gospel gets this. When Jesus is on the cross and blood and water come from his side, that's not to satisfy the medicos in his congregation. That's a reference back to the moment in the Exodus where God himself bled living water for his people because he's not anything like the gods they'd ever met. This is a God who gives his life to make us. It's not about mechanics. It's not about coming up with a wonderful explanation of how this stuff fits together. What really matters is do the people of God look like the Yahweh whose name they own? Who can say to the world around them, whack us and see what happens. We are not like any other God you've ever met. Father, we do thank you for your wonderful word. It's true there is no God like you. You're simply extraordinary beyond expression. You're amazing. We've been singing about this. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And that's not just talking about the human Jesus. This is Yahweh himself among us. The Lord himself takes upon himself this death that we might have life. Father, we pray that through your spirit, you'll help us to live this out in truth and in grace and to bring glory to your name. We ask that in the name of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.